Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 175, The Disappearing Passengers of Flight 30. Hi, I'm Jake. This week, I'm going to be talking about a terrifying 1982 plane crash at Boston's Logan Airport. World Airways Flight 30 landed on a winter night in the middle of an ice storm. The plane touched down late on a slippery runway, sliding into Boston Harbor and breaking in half. The passengers and flight attendants pulled off an impressive self-rescue, and fewer than 40 of the 198 passengers and 12 crew had to be hospitalized. While the FAA, Massport, who operate Logan Airport, and World Airways all argued publicly about who was to blame for the accident, they all agreed that it was a miracle that nobody had been killed in the crash. Or had they? But before we talk about the disappearing passengers of Flight 30, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. My pick for the Boston Book Club this week is the website New England Aviation History. It's a terrific resource and inspiration for any topic related to aviation, especially the very early years. We've used their articles to help prep for our episodes about the 1910 Boston-Harvard Aero Meet, about Amelia Earhart in Boston, and about early balloonists here in Boston. The site has sections devoted to plane crashes and other aviation accidents, unsolved mysteries of the air, and aviation history. Within the history section, I'm especially fond of the subdivisions having to do with long-forgotten airports, the airships, flying machines, and general contraptions that early pioneers used to take to the skies, or at least to make an attempt to take to the skies, and the aviation firsts that happened here in New England. One of my favorite aviation firsts on the site is this 2017 article about the first balloon flight in Boston, which was notable for resulting in the first aviation lawsuit. The earliest known balloon ascension to take place in the state of Massachusetts occurred on September 3, 1821, from the Washington Gardens on Tremont Street in Boston. The pilot was a well-known aeronaut by the name of Louis-Charles Gilles, who had begun making balloon ascensions in New Jersey in 1818. The balloon landed at Ten Hills Farm in Somerville, a town just to the north of Boston. Not only was this flight the first of its kind in the Bay State, but it also triggered what might be the first lawsuit involving a balloon. Ten Hills Farm was owned at the time by a man named Swan, who sued aeronaut Gilles for damage to his vegetable crops. The facts of the case were stated in a newspaper article which appeared in the New Elm Review, a Minnesota newspaper, on December 21, 1910, as part of an article about the potential liability attached to air travelers who may inadvertently cause damage to private property on the ground. The case involving Louis-Charles Gilles was cited as a precedent, even though it had occurred 89 years earlier. The article stated in part, The facts are there stated as follows. Giel ascended in a balloon in the vicinity of Swan's garden and descended into his garden. When he descended, his body was hanging out of the car of the balloon in a very perilous situation, and he called to a person at work in Swan's field to help him in a voice audible to the pursuing crowd. After the balloon descended, it dragged along over potatoes and radishes about 30 feet when Giel was taken out. The balloon was carried to a barn at the farther end of the premises. When the balloon descended, more than 200 persons broke into Swan's garden through the fences and came on his properties, beating down his vegetables and flowers. 
The damage done by Gilles with his balloon was about $15, but the crowd did much more. The plaintiff's damage in all amounted to $90. It was contended before the justice that Gilles was answerable only for the damage done by himself and not the damage done by the crowd. The justice was of the opinion and so instructed the jury that the defendant was answerable for all the damage done to the plaintiff. The jury accordingly found a verdict for him for $90, on which the judgment was given and for costs. The sum of $90 was a significant amount of money in 1821. Gilles appealed, but the decision was upheld. The court ruled in part that Gilles was a trespasser, although not intentionally, and that his shouts for help, quote, induced the crowd to follow him, which in turn made him liable. See, even that brief piece is backed up by four sources, which is indicative of the quality of research you'll find on the site. If you're an early aviation buff, New England aviation history is definitely worth your time to browse. And for our upcoming event this week, we're featuring History Camp Boston, which is coming up on Saturday, March 14th. History Camp is billed as an unconference, with no predefined theme and no gatekeepers deciding who gets to present on what topic. Nikki and I have been attending since the first History Camp in 2014, and we've learned a lot about the history of Boston and the world in the years since. Over the years, the range of expert presenter goes way beyond what you'd find at an academic conference, and the best part is that you don't need any special credentials or special memberships to attend. Any old nerd, like you or me, is welcome. I'll be appearing there on a panel with fellow podcasters Michael Troy of the American Revolution Podcast, Ed O'Donnell of In the Past Lane, Susan O'Chair-Stevenson of American Epistles, and Liz Covart of Ben Franklin's World. There will also be talks by past podcast guests J.L. Bell, Eric Peterson, Lori Lynn Price, Sean Quigley, and Barbara Berenson. I'll be hoping to reconnect with old friends, meet some of our fans and social media contacts, and to recruit future guests to bring on the show. As of the time of this recording, there are still tickets available, but History Camp always sells out. Register now at historycamp.org Boston to make sure you can attend. Before I move on with the show, I want to pause and say thanks to our most recent Patreon supporter, Richard L., and to longtime sponsor Michelle S. for doubling her monthly support from the Lewis Hayden level to our top tier, the Abigail Adams level. Supporters like Michelle and Richard make it possible for us to create this podcast. By signing up to sponsor Hub History for $2, $5, or even $10 a month, they allow us to pay for website hosting and security, audio processing tools, automatic transcription, and podcast media hosting. In return, we have special perks for our Amelia Earhart, Lewis Hayden, and Abigail Adams supporters. To learn more, just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory or visit hubhistory.com and click on the Support Us link. Thanks again to all our new and returning sponsors. And now the Hub History podcast players recreate for you the last moments of World Airways Flight 30, as captured by the cockpit voice recorder. Boston Tower, World 14, uh, World 30 heavy approaching the outer marker. The uh, final approach fix, over. World 30 heavy, Boston Tower. Good evening, sir. You are cleared to land. 
runway 15 right. The wind is 180 at 3. World 30 heavies, cleared to land. 15 right. We're clear to land. Flight attendants, take your seats, please. Final approach fix, altitude checks, no flags. Altitude checks, no flags. Flaps, 35, before landing checklist. Flight guidance panel. Checked. Checked. Gear lights. Down and green. Annunciator panel. Checked. Spoilers. Armed. Flaps and slats. 35, 35, land light. Before landing is complete. 7,100 feet to minimums. Ground is in sight. Roger. Runway is in sight. Slightly left. 500 feet. 400. 300. 200. 100. 50. 40. 30. 20. 10. 120 knots. No braking. 100 knots. 80 knots. No braking. Oh, sh**. 60 knots. Oh, f- We're going off the end. Tower, world's going off the end. World 30 heavy. Off the end, sir? Are you able to right turn? Uh, r- Roger, sir. Uh, notifying the Boston Fire Department. Flight 30 flew from Oakland, California to Newark International Airport on Saturday, January 23, 1982, before connecting on to Boston. It was a typically terrible winter evening in Boston, with the average temperature at Logan slowly dropping from the day's high near 40 degrees to an overnight low in the single digits. At the same time, snow showers switched over to sleet and then to rain, even as the temperature fell. Anyone who's driven on highways around Boston in similar conditions knows that that's a recipe for black ice. But instead of, say, a Honda Accord going 55 down the Mass Pike, the crew of Flight 30 found themselves behind the controls of a 300,000-pound McDonnell Douglas DC-10, and it was traveling at almost 140 miles an hour when it touched down on runway 15R. Earlier in the evening, the runway had been briefly closed for snow and ice removal. However, the National Transportation Safety Board Accident Report makes it clear that those efforts were only partially and temporarily successful. About 1 hour 48 minutes before the accident, the pilot of a Piedmont Airlines B-727 reported that braking was fair to poor. He was the first pilot to land after the runway had been reopened at 5.36. At 6.49, a Northwest B-747 pilot landed and reported the braking as fair to poor. Nine minutes later, however, a Delta DC-8 pilot reported braking as poor to nil. In a written statement submitted after the accident, he said that he landed in the normal touchdown zone, applied full reverse thrust, and minimized brake applications for controllability. He recalled that the last thousand feet of the runway was very slippery, and he found wheel braking ineffective. At 7.03, a British Airways Lockheed L-1011 pilot reported to the tower that, because of runway slipperiness, he was having trouble aligning the airplane with the runway for takeoff. At 7.28, a Northwest Airlines DC-10 landed and reported the braking as poor. 
This pilot stated later that after landing, he activated reverse thrust on all three engines as quickly as possible, and the engines spooled up evenly. When he applied wheel braking, he did not feel any deceleration. He stated that he would have normally started out of reverse thrust at 80 knots, but because of noticeably high rollout speed when 3,000 feet of runway remained, he left the three engines in the reverse thrust range. As the airplane slowed, the number three engine compressor stalled, and the engine temperatures exceeded limits. He recalled braking and steering difficulty as he turned the airplane onto the taxiway at the end of the runway. World Airways pilot Peter Langley and co-pilot Donald Hertzfeld soon encountered the same stretch of runway that other crews had described as having poor or nil braking, though it would be revealed that nobody had given them an updated weather report or passed along the other pilot's observations. After reversing the engines and standing on the brakes, Langley saw that the end of the runway was coming up fast in the windscreen, and he made the difficult split-second decision to veer left off the runway and into the grass. This allowed the plane to avoid a wooden structure supporting the landing lights that guide incoming flights in, but it took them down an embankment and into the water. The NTSB accident report describes the last seconds of Flight 30 in more detail. The airplane touched down at 7.35. Immediately upon touchdown, the captain realized that the runway was very slippery. He recognized the slipperiness by the gentle sliding contact of the landing gear with the runway, he was aware that the ground spoilers, which automatically deploy on main wheel spin-up, had not extended after the landing. However, as the nose wheel was lowered to the runway and the engines were put into reverse thrust range, the ground spoilers deployed. Several seconds later, the captain applied full reverse thrust on all engines and fully depressed the brake pedals, where he held them throughout the landing roll. At 7.36, about 11 seconds after touchdown, the captain called out, No braking which was followed 14 seconds later by his second no-braking call-out. He did not experience directional control problems, although he had little steering control. About nine seconds later, he remarked that the airplane was going to go off the end of the runway, and the first officer immediately notified the tower controller. When the captain realized that he could not stop the airplane on the runway, he steered it to the left to avoid the runway 33L approach light pier. Four seconds later... At 7.36 and 40 seconds, Flight 30 Heavy went over the seawall and into Boston Harbor. As far as I can tell, the plane was still going about 70 miles an hour when it hit the water and came to an abrupt stop. On January 25th, one passenger told the Globe that she hadn't even looked out the window as the plane descended. So the first time she realized that something was wrong was when a wave of water swept through the passenger compartment from front to rear reaching her seat in the back of first class. Another passenger, a man from London who was sitting in the second row, reported on January 24th, The pilot kept reversing the engines, but the plane wouldn't stop. The next thing I knew, there was a big bump and the front disappeared. Water was lapping right at my feet. I almost couldn't believe it, but I saw the two stewardesses and the captain in front of me in the water. Another guy helped me and we pulled them to shore. Pilot Peter Langley and co-pilot Donald Hertzfeld weren't the only ones who found themselves in the water. As the plane hit the water at the end of the runway, the fuselage came to a sudden stop, while the cockpit decided to keep going. The plane ruptured right at the first row of seats, and the cockpit was flung out into the water. One passenger also found himself ejected from the plane, as he explained to the Globe. We were moving so damn fast that I knew something was wrong. My seatbelt flew open. I flew three seats over. It just felt like it was moving too fast for landing. 
There was no warning from the pilot. The crew told us to sit down, sit down, but people were running around. They were in a panic. When we came out of the skid, I was in the water. I started swimming in about three feet of water. Then I was on the bank, and I helped some people out. The evacuation was terrible. Most people had no shoes. The official accident report elaborates, Because of the reduced visibility, traffic controllers in the Logan Tower lost sight of Flight 30 Heavy as it reached the end of Runway 15R. After the first officer's last transmission, local and ground controllers radioed for confirmation of Flight 30 Heavy's location. Upon receiving no response, the tower supervisor activated the emergency alarm to the airport fire department, and the airport was closed to air traffic. The crash fire rescue facilities of the airport responded immediately. The airplane had stopped in shallow water at the edge of the harbor, 110 feet left of the runway centerline, and midway between the approach light pier and the large granite stone blocks which lined the top of an earthen embankment. The 30-foot gravel and mud slope dropped about 10 feet from the top of the embankment to the shoreline. Under the airplane, the muddy harbor bottom continued in a gradual 5-foot slope. As Flight 30 Heavy entered the water, the wing-mounted engines were flooded and stopped running. However, the centerline engine continued to run at full reverse thrust. At the time of the accident, the water was 4 feet deep at the bottom of the 4R exit door evacuation slide and 2 feet deep between the right wingtip and the shore. The airplane was canted to the right of the shoreline, and the distance between the right wingtip and the shore was less than 4 feet. Inside the aircraft, passengers struggled to hear each other and the flight attendants as the plane's third engine, mounted high on the tail, continued to run at full throttle. Strange-smelling fumes filled the cabin and many worried about a possible explosion. Not realizing that the cockpit had broken off and taken the pilots with it, the flight attendants at first urged everyone to stay seated and wait for instructions. Only after passengers from the front of the cabin rushed back and began trying to open the emergency exits did the flight attendants realize that they were on their own. Finally, the flight attendants and passengers opened the six emergency exits, deploying the inflatable slides. Seeing that the right wing was nearly on shore, the passengers began making their way down the slides on the right side. The engine that was still running blasted them with ice, sand, and pebbles as they went. Depending on which slide they went down, some could walk down the wing and nearly step onto shore, while others waded chest-deep through 34-degree water choked with ice flows. Two Logan Airport snowplow drivers were the first on the scene. After being shocked by the sight of a plane going off the runway, swerving to avoid the landing lights, and crashing into the harbor, they raced to the edge of the water. As they pulled the first passengers out of the water and put them in the truck cab to warm up, ten fire trucks, a dozen ambulances, four emergency buses, and a Coast Guard patrol boat converged on the scene. Firefighters and state troopers waded into the water to help frigid passengers get to shore. Another trooper boarded the plane with flight engineer William Rogers while he finally shut down that third engine that had been drowning out all attempts at communication. Before long, emergency divers were in the water looking for stragglers. Interviews with passengers said that the evacuation was complete within 20 minutes of the plane hitting the water. The director of public safety at Massport commented, The real heroes were the passengers. I've never seen a more orderly evacuation. There was absolutely not a panic. All we did was direct, comfort, and find some shelter for them. Meanwhile, inside the airport, waiting family and friends were told that the flight had been delayed. 
Some of those who were waiting went up to a rooftop observation deck to watch police cruisers and ambulances tear down the runway. But the airline didn't confirm that there was a problem until after people called home to report the delay, and family members at home told them that they'd heard about a crash on the news. Back then, loved ones could wait for incoming passengers at the gate, and there was soon a chaotic scene at Gate 6. A World Airways spokesman at first said that there were no injuries, then that there were some injuries but no deaths, while state troopers attempted to push back the angry crowd. In the aftermath of the crash, 39 people were rushed to area hospitals, including 33 passengers and crew and six rescue workers. They suffered from everything from concussions and neck pain to acute hypothermia. One of the worst cases was a 33-year-old flight attendant who put on a life vest and went down the evacuation slide on the wrong side of the airplane. She wound up in deeper water and floated there alone for almost a half hour. Her body temperature had fallen to 83 degrees by the time she got to MGH for emergency rewarming. She was still in the hospital 48 hours later, as were a 27-year-old passenger with a fractured spine, pilot Peter Langley, who was badly bruised when the cockpit separated from the rest of the plane, and a 56-year-old passenger who suffered a possible heart attack during the evacuation. At 11.45 p.m., about four hours after the crash, Massport told the press that all 195 passengers had either checked in at the emergency shelter at the airport or been registered at local hospitals. The passenger total was later increased to 198 to include three infants who had been traveling without tickets. Everyone was accounted for. The initial reports on the crash in the January 24th Globe marveled at how lucky the outcome was. No one was killed or critically injured, although at least 40 people, including the pilot and co-pilot, were taken to area hospitals. Most were released after treatment for immersion and minor injuries. However, one passenger, a woman who was submerged for a half hour, was in an intensive care unit for treatment of acute hypothermia. Everybody is accounted for, Sergeant Herbert Hall of the State Police at Logan said late last night. There are no bodies floating around or anything like that. We are missing two, but they missed the flight. Because America is a litigious nation, the finger-pointing began immediately. World Airways said that Massport hadn't adequately de-iced runway 15R, and they should have stopped incoming flights if they couldn't provide safe runways. Massport said that the runway was fully sanded and safe, other flights had landed without incident that night, and the World Airways pilots had obviously made an error and touched down left of the center line. When the evacuating passengers and first responders told the newspapers that the runway was so icy they couldn't even stand up on it, a Massport spokesperson responded testily, I don't think the passengers qualify to say whether a runway is safe or not. The people who maintain those runways say they were safe, and conditions are checked virtually every minute. The National Transportation Safety Board, for their part, basically told everyone involved to shut up until they had a chance to investigate. On Tuesday the 26th, Massport and the airline continued to trade barbs, while agreeing that everyone involved was very lucky that there hadn't been any fatalities on the doomed flight. In the meantime, comments to the press indicated that the NTSB was beginning to focus on how far down the runway the plane had touched down. Runway 15R is 10,081 feet long in total, just a tad short of two miles. Its displaced threshold, however, is only 9,191 feet. Oh, what's that? You're not familiar with the term displaced threshold, you fool? Just kidding, I'd never heard of it either before researching this episode. 
The displaced threshold is essentially how much of an airport runway is allowed to be used for landing. If you look out the window while circling over an airport or look at a runway on Google Earth, you'll see that many have a series of white hash marks partway down the length, marking a point beyond which landing flights are allowed to touch down. Sometimes these restrictions are put in place for reasons like noise abatement, and sometimes they're intended to help landing flights avoid obstructions on the ground that a departing flight would easily clear. The NTSB accident report revealed that visibility from the ground was cut off by low-lying clouds at 800 feet. Several flights had to go around twice to line up on the runway correctly. The report says, During the hour before the accident, four pilots had executed missed approaches. At 6.47, a Piedmont Airlines B727-200 made a missed approach to runway 15R when the airplane was not in a position to make a normal descent to the runway. At that time, the ceiling was reported to be a measured 800 feet, with visibility at 2 miles. At 6.54, a Republic Airlines B727-200 made a second missed approach to runway 15R, when the airplane broke out of the overcast at a point from which the pilot could not complete the landing. At 7.06, a Northwest Airlines DC-10 pilot found the ceiling ragged at MDA, with visible precipitation. He saw the runway at about 2 miles and made a missed approach. These three airplanes completed their second approach successfully. At 7.09, the fourth airplane, an American B-727-100, which did not have the runway in sight at 780 feet, was directed to make a missed approach when a British Airways L-1011 had difficulty taking position for departure on runway 15R. His second descent to MDA was similar to the first. He did not have runway contact upon first reaching 780 feet. However, he subsequently sighted the runway and was able to complete his landing. With that low ceiling of visibility, the pilots of Flight 30 were approaching the airport at a lower angle than prudence would normally call for, so they'd be sure of having plenty of time to visually locate the runway and line themselves up. Earlier in the flight, they'd been wrestling with an automatic throttle system and didn't realize that they were now approaching at a higher speed than recommended. This combination of factors meant that instead of touching down near the displaced threshold markers and having a mile and three quarters to stop in, they overshot the hash marks by 2,800 feet, losing almost a third of the usable stopping distance of the icy runway. The NTSB's final conclusion said that there was blame enough to go around. The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of the accident was the minimal braking effectiveness on the ice-covered runway, the failure of the Boston Logan International Airport management to exercise maximum efforts to assess the condition of the runway to assure continued safety of landing operations, the failure of air traffic control to transmit the most recent pilot reports of braking action to the pilot of Flight 30 Heavy, and the captain's decision to accept and maintain an excessive airspeed derived from the autothrottle speed control system during the landing approach, which caused the airplane to land about 2,800 feet beyond the runway's displaced threshold. That final report wasn't published until the summer of 1985, three years later, while the parties involved continued to snipe at each other in the press in the week following the accident. While Massport, the FAA, and World Airways bickered, Audrey Metcalf of Dedham spent days on the phone with each organization, trying to get somebody to listen to her. Her 70-year-old father, Walter Metcalf, and her 40-year-old brother, Leo, had been on vacation in Port St. Joe, Florida together. They were flying People's Express from Tallahassee to Newark 
and then their connection to Boston got canceled due to the bad weather. When the two didn't show up at Logan on Saturday night, the family began to worry, and Audrey began calling the airline. As you might expect, she had trouble getting through, and when she did, she was told that her father and brother were not on the flight. The family considered whether Walter and Leo might have taken a train up from Newark, but Sunday passed, and there was no sign of them. On Monday, after being told again by the airline that all passengers were accounted for, Audrey attempted to file a missing persons report with the Denham police, but she was told that she had to file it in Florida, where they were last seen. Finally, she was able to get a passenger manifest from Flight 30 through means she was never willing to reveal. There were the names of her father and brother. On Tuesday morning, about 60 hours after the crash, she presented her findings to state police troopers at Logan Airport and managed to get them to take her seriously. That afternoon, police boarded the wrecked aircraft again and found Walter Metcalf's carry-on bag and passport. On Wednesday, divers went back into the water, looking for any sign of the pair. After passengers from the canceled People's Express flight were transferred to World, the Metcalfs somehow didn't make it onto the updated passenger manifest. They were seated in seats 1B and 1C, right along the line where the fuselage split. Their seats went into the water along with the cockpit. Neither man could swim. Now that officials were openly acknowledging that two people from the flight were missing, a number of their fellow passengers reported having seen the men struggling in the water, or at least having seen somebody they believed to be the Metcalfs. A 19-year-old student who'd been seated right behind them said that after the row of seats in front of him disappeared, he wondered what had happened to the three men sitting in them. A 25-year-old Tufts dental student told the Globe that he'd seen somebody struggling as he pulled somebody else out of the water and back into the fuselage. Quote, The person appeared to be frantically trying to swim. I said, Oh my God, I can't believe this. He said he reported a possible drowning to the state police in Massport, but they later denied having received any such report. Perhaps the most grim statement of all came from a 36-year-old management consultant who'd been seated in the first row of the cabin next to the Metcalfs. When the plane hit the icy water, he recalled being one of seven people thrown into the water. He lost his glasses on impact and then struggled with his seatbelt as his hands grew numb. Finally, he managed to release the buckle seconds before his seat sank below the surface. He said that another passenger helped him grab onto something solid to help him float, then the flight attendants yelled at him to swim to the left. But I decided they didn't know what they were talking about because that was towards the open water. He decided to turn right. There were other people to the left, and I have to assume it was the Metcalfs. I could hear them. Everybody was yelling, help us, help us. He said he followed a white blur that swam by and ended up being helped into the fuselage. He went down the slide to the wing and down the wing to the shore and into a waiting ambulance. He told the Globe, I told a policeman, I told a medic, and I told the ambulance driver that there were still people in the water, and they said, yes, we know, there are people working on it. Then I saw the Metcalfs in your newspaper. I guess the worst feeling I have is if I hadn't lost my glasses, I would have been able to see. I would have been able to help. On Friday, January 29th, six days after the accident, divers were methodically sweeping the area up to 100 yards from the plane, looking for any sign of the Metcalfs. Meanwhile, debris from the plane began washing up all over Massachusetts Bay, and even as far away as the ocean side of the Outer Cape, between Truro and Wellfleet. 
Helicopters began tracing arcs between Boston Harbor and P-Town, while police combed the beaches of the Boston Harbor Islands. The chances of recovering the bodies of the missing men began to seem remote. It wasn't until February 2nd that the airline would acknowledge that Leo and Walter Metcalf had handed their boarding passes to the gate agent upon boarding Flight 30, and one of the airline staff had simply forgotten to cross their names off the list of no-shows. In the meantime, the wreckage of Flight 30 had been removed from the end of runway 15R, leaving no visual reminders of the accident. On February 4th, rough seas and increased ice flows made diving in the harbor impossible. The search for the Metcalf's bodies was called off. On April 3rd, the family held a memorial mass at St. Mary's Church in Dedham. The last victim, the 27-year-old with the fractured spine, was discharged from MGH on April 7th. On the first anniversary of the crash, Audrey Metcalf told the Boston Globe that she wasn't satisfied with the results of the NTSB investigation. All they care about is how the plane crashed. I knew the plane crashed. I wanted to know about the rescue. They didn't focus on my father and brother or even on how many people were on the plane. That's what I'm still angry about. The family filed a $25 million wrongful death suit, which eventually settled for an undisclosed amount. On the second anniversary of the crash, Audrey sounded more resigned in comments she gave to the New York Times. Knowing that they're out there somewhere in the ocean is very hard. They feared the water terribly. For both of them to die that way was terrible. I know that they're dead. It's not that. I had their names put on the headstone where my mother's buried. But it's very hard to see their names there and know that their bodies aren't. To learn more about the crash of Flight 30 and the disappearance of Walter and Leo Metcalf, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 175. We'll have links to some coverage of the accident in the New York Times and a whole lot of coverage from the Boston Globe. We'll also include some pictures of the wrecked DC-10 and we'll link to the NTSB's accident report for World Airways Flight 30. In our dramatization of the cockpit voice recorder on World Airways Flight 30, co-host Nikki Stewart played flight engineer William Rogers. Mariana McCormick was the air traffic controller. Co-pilot Donald Hertzfeld was played by Joe Harris. And pilot Peter Langley was played by yours truly. We'll also have links in the show notes to information about History Camp Boston and New England Aviation History, this week's Boston Book Club pick. Before I let you go, I just want to share some of the awesome listener feedback we've been getting recently. First up, we have an email from a listener named Corinna. Just wanted to say that I love the Hub History podcast. It's super interesting, and there's so much Boston history I have no idea how I'd learn about otherwise. I showed it to my good friend, and we've been talking about starting something similar about Paris. Anyway, good luck. I'm a fan. Michelle left a comment on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash hubhistory, saying, Hey Hub History, after more than a year, maybe two, of listening, I've finally caught up with the back catalog. I have to say the show is great and is only getting better. I miss the typical two host sessions, but really enjoy every episode. Thanks for the amazing research you do to bring great stories of Boston history to life. On Twitter, Boston by Foot described our 18th episode about Dr. Rebecca Lee Crumpler as a praiseworthy effort to honor a pioneering woman in medicine. 
And the Writer's Bone podcast described episode 171 about Louisa May Alcott as a must-listen for those who love history and literature. And speaking of episode 170 about the Millen Faber gang's machine gun murders, Michelle tweeted, This was the wildest story I never heard of. Lots of WTH came out of my mouth while driving and listening. An anonymous commenter on the blog Universal Hub cited our 27th episode about two enslaved women who were burned at the stake in colonial Boston and said, The Hub history episode is amazing. The story is heartbreaking. I wish that history was different. Over on Facebook, Paul asked, As a listener from Australia, what does Hub stand for? After we replied and shared the quote from Oliver Wendell Holmes naming the State House Dome in Boston the hub of the solar system, Paul followed up with, Okay, I was trying to fit History University Boston or similar to HUB. Perhaps on the website About page, you can make this reference. Anyway, appreciate you getting back to me. Enjoy the stories. I've started listening because Boston is part of my Industries of the Future PhD, comparing it with Melbourne, my hometown. And this podcast seemed to be a good way to become familiar with your fair city. We also heard from Richard Offrey, whose series of blog posts about the history of Chinatown and Chinese restaurants in Boston we featured back in episode 150. He wrote in to let us know that he's been revising and expanding the series. Richard says, Hope you've been well. I've expanded and revised the first part of my history of Chinatown, and it has basically doubled in length. I've added more information on the first Chinese in Boston, the Queen of Chinatown, which surprised me, the first Tong, and much more. Hope you enjoy. Since we got that email, he also posted his expanded version of Part 2 about the first Chinese restaurants in Chinatown. We'll be sure to include a link to both parts in the show notes this week. We love getting listener feedback, like you just heard from Paul, Richard, Michelle, and Corinna. We're happy to hear your episode suggestions, factual corrections, and alternate sources that we might have missed. If you'd like to leave us some feedback on this show or any other, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. If you do, drop us a line and we'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of thanks. That's all for now. We'll be back next time to talk about unequal justice in Boston. 